right, everyone. Welcome to Radioactive, a show that plugs you into the community. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. I'm Valine Parachovic. I'm a student journalist at Salt Lake Community College, and tonight's show is a collaboration between Salt Lake Community College, Amplify Utah, and Radioactive. Stay tuned for local Indigenous leaders and community members joining me to turn Thanksgiving upside down and explore the truths of our traditional holiday and to hear the modern experiences of our Indigenous community. I myself am Alaska Native. I'm Clinkit, Unangan, and Athabascan. And we have a fully Indigenous powered show today. So this is really exciting for me. Um, I always would love to start off with, and I think it's super important with a land acknowledgement that we are collectively on Native American shared territory of the Goshut, the Diné, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute people. We honor their original ancestors of this land and also offer respect to our other tribal communities. We acknowledge this history and to cultivate respect for and advocate with our indigenous students and community members still connected to this land. And with that shared coming up later in the show, we're gonna be hearing from Professor James Singer and pre-med student Cynthia Sharma both of the Diné and Navajo nations, and they will be enlightening us to the native challenges and activism that indigenous people face today, followed by a lightning round of Thanksgiving Day Q&A. But up first, we have a Professor Nathan Cole in Orville Cayadito of the Salt Lake Community College teaching us about the truths of Thanksgiving through the indigenous lens. So I'm gonna turn it over to you, Nathan, to have you please introduce yourselves to our listeners. Thank you, Val. Um, my name is Nathan Cole. My Mohawk name is Guadalatia, means good leaf. There's a long story behind that, but uh, I, at Salt Lake Community College, I'm an English professor. And one of the courses I teach besides the usual English 1010 and 2010, first and second year writing is the Native American literature and experience class. The experience class, aspect is to get my students out into the community, whether it's to powwows, to visit the Urban Indian Center or other uh, social or um, cultural events. Um, I am Bear Clan. My mom was Bear Clan. We follow a matrilineal order. Uh, I come from the Aquasasne Mohawks. Our reservation is the tip of Northern New York and Ontario, Canada. So our reservation straddles the two countries, but I'm a dual citizenship, uh, have dual citizenship because of that. And I am a member of the larger confederacy of the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois people, or the people of the Longhouse. And I think that will do for my intro. Thank you so much, Professor Nathan. Can I ask, do you prefer, have a preference in how I address you? No, I don't. Um, I have club members. I have students who call me Nathan or Nate. Uh, Eric Watchman, one of our, our vice president of the uh, American Indian Student Leadership Club at SLCC, calls me Nate, and I'm totally comfortable with that. I just like to avoid things like Nate Dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much. You bet. Okay, and then our second panelist for this first segment is Orville, and we'd love to have you introduce yourself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, Orville. Shay Orvian Asia, Kefuchini Nishle, Pitani Bashishin, Seth Class 
Hello, everyone. My name is Orval Kayadito, and I'm currently at Solid Community College, where I serve as a student success coordinator, um, and I work in the Office of Diversity and Multicultural Affairs, and I serve uh, the Native American and um, Alaska Native students here at SLCC, and I just help them with any questions that they might have and help them with uh, their college journey. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And Orville, before um, we turn over to just start talking about Thanksgiving and the history behind it, you actually have a really interesting story about how you came to be hired at uh, Salt Lake Community College. So could you share that experience with us and how you actually came to be with Salt Lake Community College? Yeah, certainly. So um, in um, my undergrad, uh, during my undergrad career at the University of Utah, I had a um, good exposure to um, helping and being a part of the different uh, Native American student clubs and student organizations. And I wanted to uh, grow and develop um, as a young professional. And so I, after college, I got a position at the American Indian College Fund, or I served and helped uh, different tribal communities. And so what I really liked about that experience is I got to go to several different um, tribal, community, tribal communities and different reservations across the United States and kind of present on college readiness and provide kind of like a college going environment. And um, I found that really impactful um, because I got to, you know, say to go to the Standing Rock Reservation or the Menominee Lands in Wisconsin or the Salish Kootenai in Montana. And just to be um, immersed in um, different tribal communities um, on myself, uh, identifying as Navajo, um, uh, of course, going into these communities, I had to um, uh, make sure I was doing uh, my part and um, I guess checking myself and having the ability to have an open mind and to learn other other um, aspects of uh, of the different tribal communities. And you know, I missed home, and home is Salt Lake City. And I eventually just found my way back here. And what was good is that um, and this position opened up, and it was part time. And so I wanted to go ahead and um, apply, just because that was uh, I think my heart is serving. My heart is in serving um, Native American students, and so that's really what I liked. And so I found this open position, and I've been really um, thankful and blessed that I had the opportunity to be here and uh, work with so many students on projects such as the Land Acknowledgement, uh, Native American Heritage Month, and uh, meet so many um, amazing people that are really here to help um, folks within the Salt Lake community and the greater um, Utah area. So. Oh, and Nathan is right. I am full-time now. <laughs> We're so lucky to have you at Salt Lake Community College, and he really does so much with the Native students and with the staff and the faculty and really being that, that support for us. So it's an honor to have you here, Orville. Thank you for being here. And uh, Nathan, we're going to move over to you. As a professor in English composition and Native American literature, and experience. What inspired you to actually pursue your field of study? Um, my first love was always the humanities, anything that had to do with diverse peoples. Uh, in my culture and language, Mohawk, um, and I think in most every tribe, the name for themselves is the people. And in mine, they, they make the distinction, the real human beings. And the humanities 
deals with real people and their stories, their histories, their cultures, their conflicts. And that was always fascinating to me. Reading was my first love and it led me into the humanities and then into writing uh, courses. And I got my master's in uh, English as well. So that's what inspired me was the people, the diversity of people around me. And that's, I, I, I went into a pre-med major at first and then I realized I, I just did not enjoy that. So I went back to my first love, disappointed my dad. <laughs> there wasn't going to be a doctor in the family to serve with my mom, who was a nurse. And he took it in stride. He actually said, whatever you want to do, do it. So that's the words I live by. And that's why I got into the field that I'm in, the career that I'm in. And with your field, you understand the Native experience and you're able to view it through a very multifaceted lens, if you will. And so with that, I would love to have you share and illustrate for us moving, kind of transitioning into Thanksgiving and the traditional understanding of it versus the actual um, origins of Thanksgiving. And could you paint that picture for us and give us an un a deeper understanding? Yeah, um, I know most of my generation, if not uh, the next generation um, behind mine, uh, grew up with elementary schools celebrating Thanksgiving with paper cutout uh, headdresses with paper feathers and other people dressed up as the pilgrims and so forth. <clears throat> and, and I would be embarrassed by somebody trying to do an Indian dance, as they called it back then. Um, the reality is um, we had two men who uh, had encountered the, the new immigrants, I call them, at, uh, became Plymouth. Massachusetts, the Wampanoag were one of the tribes in the nearby area. So were the Potoxic, and that's where we got uh, to Squantum, otherwise known as Squanto, to a lot of people like filmmakers. And there's a film called Squanto, where um, he was kidnapped and taken to England and learned in English. And Samoset was another person who was um, in that region as part of that confederacy that they had with the Wampanoags and the Potoxics and others. And when Samoset came out of the woods and greeted them, uh, he said, welcome, and then asked for uh, some refreshment. Um, they were surprised, but Tisquantum or Squanto turned out to be the better interpreter and guide for that colony. Um, and of course, we know that in 1621, they celebrated the, what they called the first Thanksgiving. The food was not turkey. Sorry, Ben Franklin. Uh, he wanted that to be the national bird instead of the eagle. I was really venison, fruits, nuts, berries, dried fish, and, and all those things that were normal, indigenous, if you will, to that region of the, what became the United States. Um, unfortunately, that happy little greeting that took place a few years after they landed on the shores of what we now know as, uh, as Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, was not the case for every indigenous new immigrants encounter. Uh, I don't know who instructed them to come across the Atlantic and land in November, but quite often a lot of them did. There was a lot of deaths from the cold starvation. They were not prepared for this new world. And those who made allies with the natives survived and thrived. But in other times, um, the, the native uh, or indigenous peoples would have guards posted around their food caches, whether they were in caves or underneath uh, gigantic trees and, and they dug a tunnel to uh, put their cash for the winter. And 
when the native warriors would see these people get off these weird canoes, these ships, and saw them taking their food caches, for the new immigrants, it was like, oh, God's provided for us. Thank, uh, thank God. And, you know, didn't even think of the people that had put that food there. Conflict happened, war happened, and extinction happened in some of those communities because they said they're stealing our food. So it wasn't wasn't that pat story that we celebrate in the first Thanksgiving, um, and that's probably because of if you look on your American coins, every coin has an e pluribus unum out of many one, and creating a sense of unity with that model that's inscribed in our our currency. There, that's the only way I could explain the fact that they kind of gloss over that to be nice about it but really it's been a lot of history that's not been shown up in the mainstream textbooks for 180 years or more um, the story is written by the new immigrants and as we know history is is often written by those who dominate or become the majority if you will so that's uh, kind of hopefully the flip on what most people perceive or have had as a custom, besides watching the Dallas Cowboys play some other rival team uh, on Thanksgiving Day. And so with that and Thanksgiving, uh, turning this over to you, Orville, do you find it to be offensive or have you and your family found a way to reclaim the holiday? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think... Um, the way Thanksgiving is perceived in like mainstream culture and what is often taught is often very offensive and very, um, I would say, uh, degrading to Native peoples, um, just because there's a long history that's tied um, with this, I guess, Thanksgiving myth. But then I think that Thanksgiving myth does uh, so much damage to, I guess, the self-esteem of, uh, of uh, Native peoples, uh, particularly the youth and the children that are, that are going through the K through 12 systems. And so um, when I think of this Thanksgiving myth, I'm thinking even back to when I was growing up, you know, you always had those Thanksgiving activities that come up on a routine basis around this time. And it's usually, um, uh, you know, some sort of childish display or usually always done wrong or taught wrong. Um, usually this like um, pilgrim and natives narrative that's um, also wrong, as Nathan alluded to. But um, I think uh, this uh, myth does uh, great damage, as I was saying, because a lot of the children, uh, you know, they start to grow up in the K through K through twelve system with some sort of uh, with all these stereotypical imagery and all of this misunderstanding of native people, but not only that, but us also non-natives. And so a lot of the times when I'm working with uh, native students and working and advising at the club, um, a lot of times it's these spelling, uh, working through and um, kind of destroying these myths and of what that is. And so I think, um, uh, you know, while it, it's good that there's a, uh, um, I guess some sort of plan or at least some sort of uh, uh, programming to dispelling this Thanksgiving myth. I don't think it should be done. I think um, we, uh, you know, including non-natives do a better job uh, in the K through 12 systems at dispelling that myth and kind of getting that, um, you know, out, out of our minds. And so um, at least uh, your second part of the question, uh, whether or not um, my family and I have, uh, 
found a way to uh, reclaim this holiday. I think in a way we haven't really celebrated Thanksgiving per se. I think we just take it as like it's another day off. We just, you know, our family is more about gathering, uh, gathering together and just having a good amount of food. And usually that's with mutton, if we can have it, if we can't be, if we have enough sheep where we can butcher and have, and that was, I'm always a fan of that, but you know, um, it's, it's, it's only, you can only have so much. And me living up here in Salt Lake city, I only go down to New Mexico where my family's from for, you know, only certain times of the year or, um, uh, things like that. And so, um, you know, when I think of, uh, of folks gathering together, my family get gathering together, I think of those positive memories. So in a way that is reclaiming it in my own, um, families, um, uh, I guess cultural get togethers or, um, uh, when we get together as a family, not so much as this harmful pilgrim and native, uh, myth and, um, and so on and so forth, which I think does, a uh, great harm to the youth in our community. So with that, in what you were talking about in the different narratives, there's a lot of unlearning that seems to need to be happening and education and awareness. What's one thing, I'm going to direct this to you, Nathan, that you wish that non-natives would understand about the history of Thanksgiving? Sorry, I'm a little slow on the uptake here because I was pasting in what I prepared. Um, for the Haudenosaunee peoples, the Seneca, Cayugas, the Onondagas, the Oneidas, and the Mohawks, and then we added the six tribe, the Tuscaroras, who got pushed from the east uh, coast uh, line area. Uh, Thanksgiving is every day, and I, I put a link into the chat um, for two of my favorite sources for the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address, otherwise known as um, the prayer before all things and acknowledging um, our world, our environment, the earth, as well as the people, the real human beings, uh, to differentiate them from the other beings, the animal beings and the plant beings and so forth. Um, it's something that you celebrate and you become of one mind. That's my favorite refrain. Um, if I could read just the opening paragraph for that, I would love to do that, if you don't mind. Please, we would love to hear it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, the first thing mentioned is the people. Today we have gathered and we see that the cycles of life continue. We've been given the duty to live in balance and in harmony with each other and all living things. So now we bring our minds together as one, as we give greetings and thanks to each other as people. Now our minds are one. We are thankful to our mother, the earth, for she gives us all that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk about upon her. It gives us joy that she continues to care for us as she has from the beginning of time. To our mother, we send greetings and thanks. Now our minds are one. And it continues from there to talk about uh, each element of our environment, the waters, the fish, the plants, and medicine herbs and other things like that. Um, so if if you publish that link, um, there's free access for the public uh, on open websites so that you can actually um, read the full in English version of it. Um, read the English version for yourself. And that happens to be read similar to the land acknowledgement um, to be read or spoken rather. Um, before ceremonies, before special occasions, including things like marriages, dedications, 
ceremonies for burial. And, and that's because we recognize, uh, as the land acknowledgement uh, participants mentioned, that we are all just stewards here. Thank you for those beautiful words and beautiful ideas and ways that we can integrate true native um, experiences and traditions into uh, people's own Thanksgiving. And just moving forward before we go to our break, I'm a strong believer in words and how they touch us. And those were beautiful words that you just shared with us. I also like to know, is there for you, Orville, is there a quote or words that you live by or that move your spirit that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think there are several uh, quotes that I have um, that I often live by, but I think particularly at this time, um, it's not as, I guess, eloquent as uh, Nathan's, as I would say. Um, it's off of, uh, y'all are going to laugh at me, but it's off of Harry Potter. And so, um, as you know, like Harry Potter is a big thing. So, um, and, you know, I think one of the quote that's been, uh, that's been stuck with me as of late, just because I've been going through a lot is that, um, a quote that reads, um, happiness can be found even in the darkest of times, if only one remembers to turn on the light. And so I really like that one just because, you know, uh, whether it be after a day's work or after, um, you know, whatever you have going on, sometimes things can get hard and life happens. It's just what happens, especially in this pandemic. And so uh, it's always good to kind of either remember the good things or kind of just to uh, turn on the light and kind of reset and just kind of rethink everything that's going on um, rather than just focus on the negative. And it's just like just remembering that um, and taking the time just to pause, uh, reflect and kind of resonate and kind of shift really helps me as I continue with what I do or continue on um, with the year because it's been a pandemic and it's been hard on all of us. Great. We want to thank both of our panelists here, Nathan and Orville, for joining us. And coming up next, we will be hearing from the two members of the Diné Navajo Nation and getting a glimpse at the activist and healer's journey. You're listening to Radioactive with The Globe, Salt Lake Community College, student-run newspaper in Amplify, Utah, here on KRCL. And welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Valine Parachovic, your student host with Salt Lake Community College in Amplify, Utah. And we're hosting this show tonight to share Indigenous voices from the community for this Thanksgiving special. Now we are fast forwarding to current day, and we will be speaking with our next set of panelists, two Indigenous leaders, Professor James Singer of Salt Lake Community College and Cynthia Sharma, a pre-med student at SLIC. Both are of the Diné Nations. So we'll start off with you, Professor Singer, if you can introduce yourself to our listeners. I'd love to. James Courage Singer And that's how I'm a Navajo person. So I was just saying hello to all my relations and everyone. Um, I'm from the Towering House clan on my father's side. And um, the the Salt clan is my paternal grandfather. And so I'm actually biracial. My mother is uh, she, she's white people. So Thanksgiving is great because I'm 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 both parties at the same time. <laughs> um, I'm I'm mostly an urban Indian. Um, I did live a short time on the Navajo reservation. Um, I'm a father of two daughters and uh, an aspiring politico. 
and like you mentioned before, an assistant professor of sociology and ethnic studies. Great. It's wonderful to have you here. And Thanks. to clarify, do you prefer to be called Professor Singer, no. James? No, I mean, if you're in trouble and you want to get a better grade, then sure. But <laughs> <laughs> you can call me James and that's completely fine. Great. Thank you. All right. And then turning over to our pre-med student, Cynthia Sharma, we'd love to hear from you and have you introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Cynthia and I am half Navajo and I'm half Asian Indian from India. Um, Navajo on my mom's side. Um, but today I'll focus on my mom and my Native American side, just because if I go also to my Asian Indian side, as well with all that complication, it will just get too muddled. Um, so I am a post-grad student. I received my bachelor's in English, uh, creative writing specifically at Utah Valley University. Um, I'm the vice president of the pre-medical professions club here at SLIC. I'm the vice president of the American Chemical Society student affiliates chapter here at Salt Lake Community College. Um, I'm currently applying to medical school right now. I've had a few interviews um, with some med schools, so I'm hoping that, that things are on the up and up there. I mean, I'm just sending good vibes out. There's nothing else. There's nothing I can do. Um, and then last year, actually, and then James, I know um, from this, but last year I worked on changing my high school mascot, um, which was um, an appropriation of Native American culture to something uh, to something else, the Red Hawks, which is less controversial and less offensive and, and less appropriation, all the all the things less. Um, yeah, that's me. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. And I'll say that I think we're all standing behind you, Cynthia, and empowering your admissions and <laughs> in getting into med school. We're excited for you. And so moving forward here, we're going to be discussing Native American mascots, but before we go there first, I kind of want to look here at present day, due to institutions having been put in place, such as residential schools, reservations, um, that has disrupted the connection of our ancestors to our lands and our traditions of culture. And I was reading, James, in your article for Teaching America, the one day section, you wrote a piece and you shared how your family's own journey with your father being sent to boarding schools. And you have a really powerful quote in there. And I quote, the United States was fighting a war against children. And that was you speaking in light to the boarding schools, residential schools. Um, and for you, I want to ask what inspired you to write this story? I think as a part of um, coming to terms with uh, the American identity. Um, if if the United States is truly trying to become a, a society that's based on equality and democracy and, and liberty, then it has to take um, everyone's histories into account. And that does mean sometimes dealing with, with the most uh, difficult um, parts and painful history uh, that make up uh, a lot, I would say the majority of American history. There's always been groups that have been uh, disenfranchised or persecuted and oppressed, um, but especially during this this uh, season, where uh, I think people in general are much more open to listening to um, narratives about racial justice and wanting to learn more about it, 
and then especially with the um, the finding of unmarked graves around boarding schools and residential schools in Canada and the United States um, has brought this this attention to it and um, adding adding my father's experience to it and and situating it within the larger um, institutional and historical context I think is a, a good bridge um, to see that these aren't just um, isolated incidents, but that they're part of a larger um, piece that was geared towards uh, genocide, cultural and physical. And then with you sharing that, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be talked about. It needs to breathe because for many Native people, we have, this has been something that we've kept in the closet. Um, parents, grandparents didn't really want to talk about it because it was very painful for our grandparents and ancestors who were sent to these schools. So James, would you share with us your own story and how residential schools affected your family and the generational effects? Yeah, yes, of course. Um, this was the, the main part of the piece that I was getting at when I, when I wrote it. And it is you know, it's a personal tale. It's a, it's, it shows how the United States used all of its power and its, and its, its wealth in a way to, to declare a war on children. It was part of a, a concerted effort at cultural genocide, at, at taking everything away from the children and trying to replace it with, with um, uh, American civilization, I guess, was the idea behind this. And um, it's, a, it's a violent process, both emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And uh, that kind of violent um, action is the only way in which something new like that can be introduced, um, but it causes a lot of painful scars. So growing up, um, you know, um, I think traditionally, so many of our peoples were, were outwardly very caring, showing a lot of, of, of different kinds of emotions. There was the full range of humanity that's manifest. Um, it, isn't, it isn't the kind of stoic Indian stereotype that's put out in, in Hollywood. It, it, it was everything, right? We had everything. But what these residential schools or boarding schools did is it stunted that emotional growth. It, 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 cut children off from their parents. It cut them off from their ancestors, from their grandparents. And so all of this information, all of this philosophy and knowledge that had been gained over centuries, uh, thousands of years was, was cut off. And that was the main point is because if a settler colonial society or an imperial society can disconnect the indigenous peoples from the land, it allows them to become the new native person. And so all of a sudden that identity shifts, right? And so this is why you hear a lot of people saying, you know, you know, I'm one 12th Cherokee, or I'm, I have a great, 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 great grandmother who's a Cherokee princess or, or whatever it is, right? You're trying to connect themselves to show that there's this nativity there. But in order for that connection to work, the actual natives have to be destroyed in some way. And so um, the culture then is undermined, it's mocked, it's ridiculed, it's co-opted. Um, and shifted and changed for the purposes of, of the narrative of the settler colonial society. And so this is what my father had to walk into as a seven-year-old, right? Not knowing all of these larger things that are going on. Um, he experienced 
um, sexual abuse and physical abuse, spiritual and emotional abuse. And as, as he became a father, it started to manifest itself within our own family. And so those, those um, emotions that are so easy to give to children started to slowly be cut off about coincidentally the same time that he entered boarding school. Um, and so there was this, this um, detachment that, that my dad had. Now, it, it didn't mean he didn't love us any less. Um, it was just that the, those outward emotions were channeled in different ways, right? We always, he always had a, a job. We always lived in the same house. He was always there providing for us. And that was his way of showing that he was dedicated to his family and, and, and that love. But, but saying, I love you, right? Which um, I think is, is very important. Um, that wasn't a, a common thing. And I, I believe that a lot of, of boarding school survivors have difficulty sometimes in accessing their emotions and communicating that to the people who they love. So true. And it's often said, you can't give what you don't know, or you can't give what you don't have. And as you said, a lot of that was taken from our native youth in those times of our, of our parents and grandparents. Um, I thank you for sharing this because I don't know if people quite understand who are, who are non-native understand um, this is fresh. This is not something that's far removed. This is not hundreds of years ago. This is something that we are just starting to acknowledge um, within our families and now in a national level with America and then also Canada um, of the trauma that has been um, given and put on our people and inherited to the future generation. So I appreciate you going there because it's a very tough place to go. So with that, um, I want to lead into with this institutionalization that happened with being native, it has somewhat caused a riff. Are you native enough? And how native are you with blood quantum, but also where you grow up? Are you urban native or are you tribal native, like from the res or in Alaska from the village? So I wanted to ask this, um, Cynthia, do you have any experience with the urban native or tribal native um, experience? Um, yes, I, I heard that from James and then um, you just now, uh, that term urban native, and I guess that would be me, completely me. Um, my, my mom was adopted as a child through religious services here in Utah when she was a baby, when she was a year old. And into a, it was a closed adoption into a, a white family, a white Mormon family. And so she lost her culture and it, I lost my culture. So my, the theme of being an urban native, I guess, is I have always been searching to reclaim something that I feel has been lost. And I felt this since I was a child. And so has my mom. Um, she gave me a Native American middle name, um, Natanis, which I'm not, again, I'm urban and I'm also disconnected. So I'm not 100% on if that's the correct spelling or what it means. But from my understanding, from when I was a child, it's chief or leader. And so my mom did this. She gave me this middle name, Natanis, because 
there was a part of her that was searching for something and maybe she wanted to share something, but like you said, you can't share something that um, you don't have. And so she tried and I tried and throughout the years we've tried to make these connections. Um, but it wasn't really for me, it wasn't until last year when I worked on changing my high school mascot um, that I felt like I was proud to be native and that this was a part of me that is really important. And I felt positively connected towards it um, last year. And so, so yes, urban, I identify as urban native and I share my story for myself, um, for personal growth. And I also share it for other native American, especially women, because on, on top of everything else, I am a woman. And there's a whole nother experience with that that makes it harder in a lot of ways. And so for other women and for other women that are minorities, because they might have a, the same experience, just, you know, with something else, with another culture that they identify with. Thank you, Cynthia, for sharing such a deeply powerful personal experience that many people can relate to. I would love to hear you actually elaborate on the aspect of being a woman and what does that mean? Um, I think that being a woman is a difficult journey. Uh, a woman of color is so much more difficult. I, and I, in my adulthood, I've recognized the struggles and the things that I look back on. And I think if I had known more, if um, things had been different, if I, you know, it would have been a more positive experience. I, I don't know. I think being a woman is however you define it, because there are so many people around you and in society trying to define that for you. And you navigate that space your entire life. And then on top of that, if you're a woman of color and, but you grew up in a white centric area like myself, it's like, you're clearly, you're different. Your skin is different. You look different but you're surrounded by a, many um, Caucasian people and you're trying to make yourself like them to survive. And on top of that, you're a woman. So you're trying to make yourself look like other white women around you. And, and then on top of that, you're, you're believing the things that they believe. And the things that they believe can also be stereotypes towards Native people, towards Asian people, towards other people of color. And so you have this internalized stereotypes about yourself and you internalize that and it can turn into disliking who you are. And so you have to fight all of these different things as a woman. So, you know, for me as a woman, I'm a woman, but I am whatever I want to be and I can make that however I want to make it. You know, I can do what I want. Okay. I can eat what I want. I can look how I want. I can dress how I want. I identify how I want, basically. I think all women and feminists are holding their fists up right now, hearing what you're sharing, because it's truth and it's real. Um, so with that, and we were speaking earlier about how you and James actually collaborated and um, that present day that there are many challenges that indigenous people have organized and rallied against for change. And one being the Native American mascots that you touched on. 
Uh, Cynthia, can you give us an understanding of this issue and the work that you've done along with James to create change in our local community? Uh, yes. So uh, this started last year during the whole civil rights movement of 2020, as I like to call it. Uh, Black Lives Matter, it was going on and I was, there was this whole awakening happening. And with that, I think it came um, with appropriation with Native culture came with that. And so um, I graduated from high school in 2011. Mallory Rogers, who graduated in 2013, last year, she decided that the mascot at our high school wasn't appropriate. It wasn't correct. Students dressing up as Native American uh, people not understanding it, um, making caricatures of it wasn't right. And so it, that kind of started uh, this whole movement. And I reached out to her because I saw it because I was also having those thoughts. They just were put into action and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, it was a long process. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the beginning and what had happened uh, last year. And James, turning it over to you, how did you help see this movement through and um, this victory of changing that high school mascot with Cynthia and others in your group? Um, what we had to do was to regain our humanity because what the mascot does is it dehumanizes. It's the same category that um, occupations or mythical animals uh, also occupy. I mean, they're all sharing the same space. And natives are the only other uh, racial group or political group that's you know, living today that are used in this way. And so what we had to do was show that Indian mascots are not indigenous people. And that's a, that's a very important distinction because the Indian, the Hollywood Indian is a stereotypical caricature. It's a trope. It is, it is taking the position of the, the colonizer or the imperial power of what they see the indigenous person being like, and, and then grafting that onto a wide range of different phenotypical and other physical characteristics that supposedly make us native. And so then all of a sudden we're being honored by um, basically them dressing up as the Hollywood Indian and, and um, in a sense, ridiculing some of our, our, our sacred ways by making these different dances, putting on war paint, following basically the template of the Hollywood Indian. And I remember hearing something from uh, another native who thought that um, mascots were actually a good thing because it helped keep us visible in the, the larger mainstream consciousness. And I thought, yeah, that it, it's true. It does allow us to be seen, but it's not really us. It's not an authentic, real representation of us. And I would argue that if you ask any student who attended uh, Bountiful High School and compared how much knowledge they have about Indians or natives from any other school, that it would be the same and it might even be skewed right, towards, towards very, um, a, a very different way of viewing Native peoples. And so that was our message, was to, was to humanize, was to show that we are your neighbors, to show that um, this is a, a positive thing, that, that it's not just racism against Natives, but this also implicates 
white people as well. And it was pointing that out. It was white people who, who control these institutions. It's white people who created the mascot. It's white people who have the decision to keep it or not. And, and white people to maintain that. We were showing them, hello, we want to, to help you see the humanity in all of us. If we really aspire to some of these American um, values, then we need to be getting rid of things like this. Yeah, for a lot of people, it, it seems like it's it's all a bit of fun or um, it, it, it's not as bad as some other things. Well, of course it is. Of course it isn't, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it is not as bad as missing and murdered indigenous women. But if you're already caricaturizing um, uh, women in such a way like Pocahontas and you're sexualizing that, it's a very small jump to see why so many uh, colonizers or settlers go after native women. They already have this been socialized into them in the in the, the normal American psyche. And so we that was our, I think our main goal was just to humanize who we are and 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 not necessarily be confrontational, but but speaking up for who we are, truly who we are. And Cynthia, turning this over to you, I want to ask with all this beautiful work that you've done in activism with James and the other group that got the bountiful mascot changed. Um, what is a dream that you hold for your people or future generations? That's a great question. Um, I would hope in the future that uh, we can see more value, I guess, uh, and have a more open mind it's kind of simple actually. And you would think that it would have happened. And, um, but it was like, they say, it wasn't that long ago. All this stuff wasn't that long ago. You know, a lot of rights weren't had until almost like the seventies and eighties and, and Jim Crow and all, all these things happened. And, and so of course it's not there yet, but I guess I would hope for more value, uh, uh, more women in leadership, women of color in leadership. Um, I would hope for that. I mean, that's my biggest thing. Honestly, I would think, yeah, more women and women of color just believing in themselves and and taking that confidence, even though you don't feel like you could be a leader and you have those skills. And, and I think a lot of maybe women feel this way, perhaps, but um, we can do it. And, and also... Uh, as Native American women, uh, I think James is right. I would hope that we move away from sexualizing women of color and Native women and get away from that. I mean, that's horrible. I mean, I think about that all the time, uh, missing and murdered indigenous, indigenous women. And I, it's really terrible. I mean, I guess that's my answer. <laughs> but just all of that, whatever I just said, that collection of stuff, that's just what I hope for the future. And then James, I'm going to turn that over to you. And um, as we end this segment is what is a dream that you hold for your own children? You said you have two daughters and for your people, Navajo Nation or collective indigenous of this of this earth. What is a dream that you hold for the Merovision? That's a great question. And I, I think we did discuss this at one point, Belling, when we had our, our conversation a few months ago. But what I see is the the valuing of indigenous knowledge, right? Not, not just seen as some kind of 
anthropological or archaeological thing to study in school, right? If we look at Utah history, it's like, okay, here were the Indians. Now they have reservations, the end. Like we don't hear much about it at all. And it doesn't, and, and the knowledge that natives have produced over time has been has been purposefully taken out to, to because it doesn't fit within the narrative. But I mean, just looking, for example, we're talking about Thanksgiving, the food inventions that native peoples made, corn, squash, tomatoes, all of these, these uh, a, a huge amount of, of food that went across the entire world and, and helped build the nutritional plates for everybody. And now you see tomatoes in Italy, you see peppers out in, in, in uh, Asia. Those were American inventions from American Indians. And so I would like to see not just our foods exported around the world, but our life ways, the ways that we think. Because in actuality, our ways of thinking and being will save us, will save this planet will save humanity. Because on the road that we're on with conspicuous consumption and an economic engine that constantly requires the consumption of individuals, of societies, of resources, it has to continually grow in order for it to work. But there is a finite amount of resources on this planet. And so what we, what we can do as natives is to show, hey, we've got connection to land. We see land as sacred. If you're treating something as sacred, it's a completely different kind of, of, of relationship. The same thing with our connection to others. I mean, that's how, you know, uh, all of us have described ourselves today as, as being a part of a people, being part of a specific clan. There are our responsibilities and duties to each other. And how well would that be for the entire world to show how we're all connected, how we're connected to each other, how we're connected to Mother Earth and to the, to the animals and plants and everything around us. And the last part is balance, right? Walking in harmony is what, what we say as Navajo, but this is a common um, idea across all of Indian country is that things have to be balanced, being balanced from the past, balanced to the future, balanced with work, balanced with spirituality, balanced with family life, balanced with fun and humor, balanced with being respectful and mournful. All of those things need to be in tune. All of our ceremonies as Navajos are trying to rebalance us to make sure that we're walking in harmony. This is the kind of, of knowledge that, that the rest of the world needs to hear. And it's something that will, that will, I know it could help save our planet and save our, and save humanity. Thank you for that. And that beautiful sharing of what I think is highly under the radar and not acknowledged is the native contribution to the nutritional plates. That was beautifully said, James, thank you. And it's a very, very nice segue into a fun little thing that we're gonna bring up next is the lightning round question. So if we can bring our other panelists back, Nathan and Orville. So what I'm gonna do is just real quick, shooting from the hip, what feels right for you guys is, um, I want to ask each one of you, so this can be a real quick response, um, and then kind of paint a picture for us because not all of us know um, the certain dishes you're going to be sharing. So my first question is quick: What is a traditional dish that you miss most from home? And please describe it for us. We'll start with you, Nathan. I appreciated James uh, mentioning the exporting of all our indigenous foods. Uh, corn was actually across every tribe in uh, the North 
North American continent and, and also in Central and South America. Um, so my favorite food is corn soup. Um, and in some ways it kind of mirrors what the Navajo or the Dene nation have as uh, Navajo tacos, fry bread. Um, because nowadays you can only get things in cans, but it's a, a mixture of hominy corn and pork uh, roast or pork rump. Uh, ham will do, just a regular ham will do. And it's got vegetables in it. Corn, beans, and squash were known as the three sisters in my culture or in the Haudenosaunee cultures. And uh, it's interesting, if you look at the biology, they all protected each other. Uh, with either nitrates um, being provided, uh, shade being provided by the taller plants and the lower plants to protect the roots and all. Uh, and the other thing is more modern though, and this is kind of my parallel to like Navajo tacos. Uh, we also have a, a wedding dish, hash. It's basically potatoes and hamburger, but it has other ingredients in it. Some have eggs inserted in there and stirred up and it just, it kind of spreads like when Navajo's got very little flour, they could extend that flour by uh, making it possible for more people to have some sustenance there. So hash kind of does that for us, even though potatoes, like we know the American potatoes now, wasn't exactly one of our staples. So I miss that a lot in, uh, and uh, just any food that my mom, my grandparents, my grandmas, my aunties, cousins made. I just, I just miss that. So um, some of that, yeah, you have to kind of import it out here in the West. Um, it's hard to find on the store shelves, but I love it. And then passing that question to you, Arl, what's a traditional dish that you miss from back home? Yeah, something that we... Um cooked in my family fairly often, especially in big events, was just mutton stew. I think I really liked, um, I know I like meat and it's just with, uh, particularly, uh, mutton or, you know, lamb, uh, it's usually, uh, in a particular stew, say, uh, everyone has their variations. Usually it's potatoes, vegetables, chili, um, some celery and all that good stuff. And then usually, um, but, uh, I guess uh, butcher and a sheep is an all day process and it takes multiple family members to do that. And I love, um, uh, you know, a lot of family members on all around, such as my grandmother, but I have uh, fond memories of just um, everyone taking part in that um, all days uh, butchering, butchering event or uh, butchering uh, thing. And it always, uh, my favorite thing was just to see which the little kids were squirmish from seeing the little, you know, the lambs being butchered, but it's like, you know, all the little ones is like, are you going to watch it? Are you going to watch it? No, I'm not going to watch it. But, you know, uh, that just that those little bits, but then, and then the way that, you know, we use every part of the lamb and the way that it's taken care of and the way that each one of my uncles was able to talk me through each and every little bit um, of using, uh, of using the lamb or sheep. And so that's, uh, that's what I remember is just being there with family. Um, and that's what I miss, especially after, you know, growing up, uh, some of those folks are no longer here. So those are my memories. Cynthia, turning it over to you. What's a traditional dish that you miss most from your home? Okay. So I just like mashed potatoes and gravy. Okay. I have a problem with carbs. So when I eat one bite, I have to eat it all. I like dark gravy. Um, this is very important. 
Uh, yes, I like garlic in it. And it has to have these big cilantro and parsley leaves so that you get that stuck in your teeth. And you're like, what is that? And you're like a little dissatisfied, but then you keep eating more to get happy again. So it's a vicious cycle. We need that recipe, Cynthia. And then James, turning that over to you, what's a traditional dish that you miss most from home? Well, I don't know how traditional it is, but something that I remember very early memories of it was like a a beef type stew. So very similar to kind of a mutton stew, right? But just substituting mutton with with beef. Um, After after living in urban areas for a while and you haven't had mutton, um, it's a little bit of a shock. Um, I remember the last time I went down to visit my grandparents, they cooked up some mutton and oh man, it smelled so good, looked great. I ate it and I had the worst, like, oh, I feel so sick. I'm not going to survive. And they're just laughing at me. They're just making fun of me, which was great. I mean, it was a great moment. But anyway, the beef stew, right? So it's a tomato-based broth. Um, it has, you know, potatoes, carrots, celery. And um, if you can get a nice, like, uh, beef roast, um, as, as part of it, you cut it up into little chunks. So they're all, everything's all about the same size. Um, and so you could scoop it up with your, with your, with your spoon and you can get everything about the same size. You get everything in one bite. That's the, that's like perfection. It's just right there. So that's something that actually I, I don't make a whole lot in my house now, but, um, it's something I think about with, with my parents and, uh, it's, it's a good one. This perfect ratio is so important. <laughs> I'll, I'll share something just jumping in here. Um, something that I miss from back home and from Alaska is uh, we call it uh, Indian popcorn and it's uh, fish eggs and they're on um, like little branches or kelp and they're herring eggs. They're super small. So when you chew them, they pop. So you usually cook them for like one minute, salt it really good. I like to dip it in some soy sauce. Elders usually like to dip it in seal oil and it is phenomenal. Like we fight over um, who gets the biggest portions. (laughs) All right. And that's our show and the special holiday edition of Radioactive. And we want to give a special thank you to our panelists, to Nathan, James, Cynthia, Orville, for all joining us today. And a big thank you to our executive producer and original host of this show, Laura Jones, for passing the mic to us and giving Indigenous Voices a platform to share and to connect with our community. Gunesh Chish to tonight, tonight's guest, and for stepping up and sharing your sacred stories with us. I'm Valine, a student Radio SLCC, Salt Lake Community College. And my thanks to Marcy Young Cancio of Amplify Utah for their continued support of diverse storytellers and stories. And happy Thanksgiving to you. And thank you for joining us here at Radioactive. Have a safe and connected holiday with those you love. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Good to see everybody. Take care. See you on campus, hopefully. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody, so much.